Welcome to Theatetus, the podcast that turns thinking into an adventure. I'm your host, Justin, just an average guy with an insatiable curiosity about how we know what we know. Join me as I explore the power of thought and uncover the hidden truths of our inner worlds. This is Theatetus. Hi, welcome back to another episode of the Theatetus podcast. Today we're going to start a series on critical thinking and how to do it. So last time we talked about why it's important, why it matters. That was kind of the kickoff of this conversation. And now I want to get into critical, what I'm calling critical thinking 101. This is how you actually do critical thinking. That term gets used a lot. Mostly it, it's used to criticize people that don't think the way we do. But the funny thing is critical thinking actually really remains almost the exact opposite, that we're just as critical of ourselves and the way we think as we are of anyone else. So let's dive into how we actually critically think. So the first step in that that Hannah and I are going to cover today is what is the mindset of a critical thinker? What are the attributes that a critical thinker approaches a question or a problem with? And believe it or not, somebody has taken the time to define these. Uh, there's a, an excellent book that I highly recommend by Linda Elder and Richard Paul, professors that have put, put together an entire curriculum about how to think critically. And part of that curriculum includes what they call the intellectual virtues. And so that's what we're going to cover today because these really summarize the mindset that a critical thinker has when they approach a question, an issue, or a problem. It Anything was, you want to add, honey? Yeah, it was um, really interesting as we found these studies and this curriculum that had been put together. It was so interesting to look at those different intellectual virtues and just kind of see how we developed these disclaimer here we're not perfect people and I don't and we're not trying to sound that way we've got a lot of progress to make in every area of our lives but it's always a healthy thing that anyone can do to look back at yourself and see um, the progress you've made over time and I think that's that's kind of what we're going to be doing today is looking back at a little bit of our journey telling this in more of a storyline format of the different things that we came across and learned that help us helped us develop these different attributes or traits or qualities that really allow us to critically think about our own opinions, about just different information that we come across. And the nice thing about critical thinking is I think it gives you some freedom to be able to come across things and not have it disrupt your emotional stability. Yeah. How how often are we this is the, it's the famous, you know, meme about Thanksgiving dinner. You sit down with family members that have different political views yeah. or whatever and it triggers this big, you know, heated discussion or fight. Or how I've often seen a couple of really interesting <laughs> parties from that. Yeah. Yeah. Everyone has a good story, right? Yep. Or just check out the comment section of a a, a news article about a controversial issue or and any comments section of any social media site, um, you can see how 
when people bring up things that we disagree with, people can get triggered and get really defensive and angry. Mm -hmm. And the nice thing about critical thinking is that you can approach everything objectively. It takes practice, but you learn how to remove yourself from that emotional response and uh, you don't get all worked up. Exactly. And to kind of jump into the story of how we develop some of these things, just like we were talking about um, learning how to not be emotionally reactive. I think the beginning of that for me was a need. I had to figure out how to not emotionally react to information because back in 2018, Justin had been going through a critical thinking learning journey for quite a while and I've been listening to him and I've learned some things, but I don't know how much I'd really internalized it. And I didn't really know how to ask questions yet or to, I didn't really have any uh, intellectual autonomy to be able to think for myself very well. But at that time, some big things were going on in our lives, some big changes. There were a lot of different stressors and I started to have some, some severe anxiety and it started out as panic attacks and in not too much time I started experiencing what's called psychogenic pseudo seizures um, which are anxiety induced and they basically look like convulsive seizures but they're they're caused by your brain not being able to process certain information and it basically shuts down your body and your brain and you have what looks like a real seizure. And and those would be followed by not being able to move. I would be feel almost paralyzed, literally, where I couldn't move my body. And not to get too much into it, I'm just going to kind of skim over it. We thought there was like some medical problem that I was experiencing. We weren't sure what was going on. Long story short, I ended up recovering some repressed memories of some severe abuse and trauma that happened in my childhood uh, that was committed by not anyone in my family. So anyone that knows me, it was someone outside my family. And that led to a long road to recovery for me. And as you can imagine, with such a traumatic experience, I had to start learning how to not get triggered by pretty much everything you know (laughs) it was as yeah Justin was he saw all of that and you know was he was a main key in me healing in a lot of different ways but really together we kind of had to learn how to he kind of knew how to do this on his own a little bit but I really had to learn how to be able to look at things objectively and to not let them trigger me. And in this process, I also learned how to have a lot of empathy for people. I learned that there are oftentimes things going on in our brains that not only do like other people aren't able to see what's going on in someone else's brain. But a lot of times we don't even know what's going on in our brains to know what's causing us to act in a certain way. And it gave me a lot of empathy to realize that we can't make a judgment of someone and we need to be able to 
try and step out of our own shoes and to step into someone else's to look back not only at, you know, their immediate reaction to something, but realize that there's there's probably a long history of things in their lives that's led up to them thinking and acting a certain way. I think all of us are getting a little more aware of things like generational trauma, and we can look back at people we know really well, and we can see how the way they act now is often a result of something that went that happened in their parents' lives and even in their grandparents' or great-grandparents' lives. And I think that experience for me with the seizures was a huge eye-opener to realize that there's more going on than what we just see on the surface. And we can't just make snap judgments about people and say they're just ridiculous or what they think is totally invalid. Where do they even get that from? You know, all we can make all these judgments about them, but it really is so much more than we think. It goes so much deeper than we think. Our subconscious, our subconsciences, our subconsciouses. How do you, you say, say that? our subconscious? Yeah. Our, thank you. Our <laughs> subconscious is crazy. Like there is so much more than we think. Um, they, they have that iceberg analogy and that's no joke. Having... I think I have a little more experience with subconscious than most people do. And I can say that, that that iceberg analogy is really true. There's so much more than we think. And empathy is a really big key to helping to learn to not be emotionally reactive to people and to their thoughts. If we can realize that, you know, there's, there's a long history there and we need to have give people space yeah. to have their thoughts and feelings. Yeah, thanks for for sharing that experience. I think it summarizes really well uh, the this first attribute that we wanted to talk about. It's called intele- intellectual empathy, if uh, you hadn't figured that out yet. And it... Hannah just illustrated how that impacted her, where she saw how her own experiences in her life had created a way that her brain was actually processing the world around her. As we've, as we've looked back on this, we've figured out so many things about Hannah, even before any of this happened, things that she didn't understand about herself that I didn't understand about her. Uh, Things where she was, she was really scared of certain things and like that just didn't make sense. And she knew they didn't make sense, but as soon as she, you know, she got these memories and we kind of worked through that. We figured out there was something under the surface, like she said, that iceberg analogy, there was something under the surface that was impacting the way she was processing the world around her. Now, where intellectual empathy comes in is when you recognize that everyone else around you is having the same exact experience not meaning the same exact experiences as you, but they are having their own experiences that's impacting their thinking, that's impacting the way they process the world around them. So when we recognize that, that helps us to not be quite as wedded to our own beliefs and 
to to be more open to seeing seeing something from somebody else's point of view. That's what intellectual empathy is, that we mentally place ourselves in another person's shoes and try to understand their beliefs through the lens of their unique experiences. Does that make sense? Anything you want to add to that? No, that's perfect. So one of the things that I think helped me to do this was Hannah and I, when we first got married, we we lived in... It was by our local college. Yeah, it was by our the school that we were both going to. Mm-hmm. We moved down there and we got to know the people around. And I had this transformation. I think Hannah did too, to some degree. We both did for sure. Where we we saw amazing people. Our neighbors were amazing people. And some of them were they didn't they didn't make a lot of money and they struggled financially but they were the hardest working just nicest people that we knew and it changed you shed those stereotypes right yeah it helped me shed yeah exactly and it helped me to see to have that intellectual empathy i started to realize people had different experiences than what i had always perceived them as having they lived different lives than what I had grown up with. And I recognized that my unique experiences were inadequate to fully understand those people. And as I opened myself up to understanding where they were coming from, from the experience, the life experiences that they had had, I realized that my own insular perspective, it, it just, it wasn't sufficient. It wasn't enough for me to make good judgment calls about what was the right thing to do for everybody. Yeah. So at that time, you know, we were around all these people that were a little bit different than the people that we grew up living by, and they were amazing. Um, We'd never met such kind and self, like there were just people that if you needed anything, they were there for you. And they were so vulnerable, like they, they could share their stories you know I think sometimes we grow grow up in areas where you know it's always keeping up with the Joneses yeah there were no pretensions like it it was everybody was just super open and themselves and just very genuine yeah Um, people let you know where their needs were and everyone just reciprocated and the friendships we made there were amazing. At that same time, I was also working and I was also meeting different people there too. Um, for example, I met, well, we'll call her Mary, but she was a transgender woman. And I grew up uh, in a family that was adamantly against such things. And it was so interesting for me. It just opened my eyes to the fact that you know you just you can't judge where someone's coming from and I don't feel like it's my place to share her story on this podcast but you know I was able to talk with her and heard about um, her upbringing and just all the different things that she had felt and had experienced and I just realized like it is not my place to say that she's wrong she was a good person. It just made me realize that my own opinion on on certain topics isn't 
just like Justin said, isn't really valid because you don't you don't know what this person's lived through. And so I, I don't know that I'd say it's not valid. I'd say it's not sufficient. So yeah, okay, that's better. Yeah, thanks. So yeah, it, there were just a lot of things in that time period where we just got exposed in a sense to all of these different things that um, hadn't been a part of our very sheltered lives and uh, just gave us some new perspectives that allowed us to develop some empathy that we didn't have before. Yeah, love it. So yeah, that's intellectual empathy. I'm going to, just so you don't have to remember all of these throughout the episode, I'm going to share a link to a, a document that just lists all these and uh, gives a, a definition of them so that you can refer back to that as you work on developing some of some of these intellectual virtues. So I, I, I hope that as we discuss that one, it showed as well that it was a process. It was a process of us changing really our neural pathways, mm-hmm. like our, our yeah. brains processed things in a certain way before that. But when, then we had these experiences and when we'd had enough of them and we started to, to really try to think differently, it took time. This isn't something that happens overnight, but it did kind of recarve some neural pathways to, to think about things in a little bit different light where our personal experience throughout life was not the only valid one that people had other experiences and that just because I've experienced life in a certain way doesn't mean that the way I perceive it is the hundred percent right way. So yeah, that's, that's empathy, intellectual empathy. Should we move on to the next one? Yes. Okay. So around the same time, Justin, he is, we call it an infobore where he's just, I'm just a giant nerd. That's, (laughs) let's just call it what it is. He's just devouring books at this time. And he kind of talked about it in his first episode. So, but he was just, you know, like coming home every day or, you know, he'd just be like reading at night and he would just be like sharing information with me like crazy. And, um, I'm sorry. (laughs) No, it was was good. It helped me grow. Yeah. I, I learned a lot through osmosis through Justin (laughs) Um, uh, but basically one of these things, I remember a lot of it, you know, was kind of over my head for a long time. I kind of grew into most of it, but, um, I remember one of the first things that really hit me and stuck with me was a study that's, that was done by David Dunning and Justin Kruger. And consequently, this is called the Dunning-Kruger effect. And it was a study on cognitive bias and how people with limited competence in a certain area will overestimate how competent they are. So basically, I think the easiest way to think of it is like you don't know what you don't know. And um, Here, can I let me yeah Justin, let me jump in and explain the the experiment that they did really quick so because I think that's what illustrates. Justin's for he's good at all this stuff <laughs> I think my helps. retention is not great so <laughs> to Justin <laughs> so okay so the this was the nerdy part that I came home one day and started telling Hannah about because I'd I'd heard of this I think in the news or something and uh, I went and looked it up and actually read the study and uh, it's it's not very long it was only like ten pages but it was fascinating. They, they set up these tests and had people, before they took the test, they estimated how, or no, it was after they took the test. They'd take these tests, it was like math, I think, and 
then they would ask the person after the test, how well do you think you did? And person would answer how, how well they thought they did. And afterwards they looked at, they compared how well the people actually did with how well they thought they did. And what they found was that those that did the worst were the most likely to overestimate how well they did. And that those that did the best tended to underestimate how well they did. Now there's, there's some caveats to this is the experiment's been like redone and the data re-examined. It looks like some of that is just a statistical artifact. Basically the way they analyzed the data kind of created this like false view that that people that did the worst were overestimating themselves the most and the people that did the best and underestimated themselves. What, as they've redone it and like dug further into this effect, it actually looks like in general, most people just overestimate how well they do something. So a good example of this is in surveys of just, you know, the general American population, they'll ask, are you an above average driver, an average driver, or a below average driver. And 93% of Americans say that they are above average drivers. Now that doesn't really work. Yeah. How does that make sense? Like if it's average, it means only 50 or 50% of Americans are above average. 50% of Americans are below average, but 93% of of Americans say that they are above average drivers. That's the Dunning-Kruger effect in action, where we overestimate our capabilities, our own capabilities. And uh, yeah, this study was really interesting, just showing that a lot of times we're dumber than we think we are. That's what it comes down to. Yeah. And so I don't know why this information hit me the way it did, but basically it started helping me stop and think anytime I was thinking that Um, you know, I was about to express an opinion or felt like I had a really good grasp on on some piece of information, it helped me to realize that, you know what, I'm probably overestimating how much I understand about this this piece of information. And, you know, if you want to see this in your own life, go start a home improvement project and (laughs) (laughs) see how quickly you realize that you got into it it's a lot more complicated than you thought it would be initially, right? You I, overestimate you your overestimate own abilities. overestimate your ability to do something. Yeah, or, or I think you could say this like in school, if you like start a subject in school or, um, you know, if you start a new job and you're like, oh, I should be fine at this. And then you get in, you're like, oh, there's a lot more to it than I thought here. You know, and that's the case in most things. And knowing this piece of information helped me to, Um, check myself all the time and say maybe before I express this strong opinion that I have you know maybe I need to check myself and say do I have all of the information have I looked at everything have I looked at both sides of this Um, maybe I'm not quite as uh, educated on this topic as I think I am and that was just something that helped me develop another one of these virtues, which is intellectual humility and is essential to critical thinking. You have to be able to say, maybe I don't know everything and that's okay. That's okay. It, I think 
it actually is a really cool thing to have because like think about how much more room you have to grow if you can acknowledge that you don't know it all. I think this might be the hardest, maybe maybe one of the hardest, one of these intellectual virtues to develop because it's, well, I take that back. I take that back. I think intellectual courage is harder to develop, harder yeah, to develop. I but, might agree with that one. But intellectual humility is a tough one because realizing that you don't know as much as you think you do is pretty, it can be kind of scary. Uh, I described this in my first episode in the intro when I was reading Elegant Universe, the the book about uh, theoretical physics. And I, I talk about this when I was learning about quarks and, you know, subatomic particles and all of that stuff and the, the and quantum physics. Realizing how little humanity actually understands about the very stuff we're made of, that everything's made of, that was intellectually humbling and it 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 feels a little bit like the rug getting pulled out from under you because all of these things that you thought you had certainty about you you recognize maybe i don't know maybe i don't know as much as i thought i did and it can be scary but when you as you work on this trait on intellectual humility and recognizing that you there's always more to learn. I think that's the positive way to, to, to frame this is think of it in is there's always more to learn, even on something where you feel like you are an expert. Recognize there's always more to learn. Be open to criticism of what you believe because you could be wrong. Even on something you think you're absolutely right, that you have the full complete truth or you're an expert, you could be wrong. And that feels scary at first, but as you get more used to just embracing that feeling, it's actually really liberating and and cool because you, you always have opportunities to learn new things and to get new perspectives, and it, it just makes you way more open. True. So that's intellectual humility. Anything else you want to say about intellectual humility, or should we move on to the one I just mentioned, intellectual courage? The only other thing that I want to mention here that I think is really important is back early in college justin and i coincidentally had signed up for oh yeah i'm glad you're sharing this story. this <laughs> is a good one yeah everybody listen <laughs> we had signed up um for the same class before we started dating and then started dating like over what was it like christmas break or something yeah and then started this new semester and realized oh we have this class it wasn't the same time block but we had the same professor and the same subject. So all of our homework was the same, right? And this class... We tried to just go to each other's classes and skip our own. She didn't allow it. But she didn't like that. It was rude. She said we needed to go to our own <laughs> class periods. How rude. No, but no, it was fine. Um, but this professor was so awesome. Most, most people did not like her because she really pushed you. And it was not the easiest class. It was pretty difficult, actually. But this was mine and Justin's introduction to critical thinking as a concrete subject. She, she taught us about logical fallacies. She taught us about ethos, pathos, and logos. Ooh, we got to have an episode on that sometime. We should. She just taught us all of these critical thinking tools. And 
I personally believe that this has played a huge factor in our marriage as a whole because you could ask most people that know us. I think I think there's a f- few different reasons for this. I mean, we're both not very um, confrontational people, but we really like to be together all the time, and we rarely, like, very rarely fight. That doesn't mean we don't disagree, because we do, but we we hardly ever fight, and I'm not tooting my own horn here at all, or Justin's, but... Yeah, so I'm, I'm not trying to say we're great or anything, but I think what really plays a huge part in this is very early on, like from right from when we started dating, we learned some tools to realize that we might not always be right. Like, for example, this teacher, um, she would have us write an essay, uh, like a 10 or was it 10 or 15 pages? 10. It was 10. It felt like 15, but it was, they, they were long. I think our research paper was 20. I think that was 20. Yeah. And then our persuasive essay was 10. Yeah. So we had to write a persuasive essay arguing a belief that we had. And no, it was the other way around. We started with, we had to do a research paper about a subject that we felt really passionate about. That's right. Yeah. So this big, long paper, we had to do like tons of research. We were working on it for what, like a month? Uh-huh. Um, and I don't know. It was Professor Brown. It might have been like a week. That's true. That's true. She was a tough teacher. She, but she was awesome. Thank you, Professor Brown. You changed. I'm, my whole point here is that you changed our marriage. Um, but we had to research this topic that we felt very strongly about already. And then we had to come up with all of these reasons to back it up, right? So we're even feeling even more like I am right on this. And then you, you can imagine it's something you feel passionate about, and then you're assigned to do a research paper on it. And so we're basically going out and finding all of the information that confirms our, our biases. biases, like what we what we already believed. Yeah. And then, and then, so, you know, think about this, like you're, you spent so long, like you've done so much work to get this 20 page paper done. You go and turn it in. You're like, oh, done with that. And then that same day, she's like, great. Now you get to write a persuasive argument, arguing the opposing opinion. Yeah. You have to write a 10 page paper uh, or 10 page persuasive essay arguing the opposite side. If that wasn't demoralizing, I don't know what was, but. But this was such a good experience for us because right from the beginning, It taught us how to see this opinion that each of us had about, you know, whatever was going on in our lives and um, realize that there were things we were probably missing. There, There was information we didn't have. We might not understand each other's feelings. And it helped us to see right from the first couple months of our dating experience that there was always more to the story and that we weren't a hundred there was there was a good chance we weren't a hundred percent right and that before we got upset with each other we need to 
we needed to figure out what information we were missing and to try and communicate and talk through the things um, that we were struggling with. And granted, that did take us some time to figure out how to do the communication part, but it started with us knowing that there was a good chance that we weren't 100% right. Yeah. And that we, you know, we couldn't just like start yelling at each other because we didn't want to, you know, yell at each other and then find out that we were wrong. Yep. yep. So I think, yeah, we learned some intellectual humility there because what, yeah, what happened with Professor Brown's assignment was we saw that in action where all of a sudden I had to write a persuasive essay about a position I didn't agree with. And as I started researching that and figuring out how, like what their what the steel man arguments were for mm-hmm. for that position, I realized, whoa, there was a lot I didn't know. There was there were perspectives I hadn't thought of. I didn't know the steel man argument. I basically my whole life had been arguing against a straw man. And yeah. that's what that that assignment did for me. And yeah, just realizing that has helped us in her marriage as we have disagreements to recognize, okay, maybe I don't have all the information. I don't I don't know everything this could really just be miscommunication and there's something about what Hannah's thinking that I'm not understanding. And, uh, yeah, anyway. Yeah. So I remember on that assignment, I ended up changing my opinion. I um, did too. Yep. And I share this experience because, um, I kind of want to point out that critical thinking isn't just some abstract thing that doesn't, it's just, you know, about the way you think again, it's, you know, like it's changed the way we live. It's changed how well our marriage has worked. It's, um, it helps us with our children to apply those same things with them. And we're not perfect parents. We could always do better, but, um, you know, there's a lot of times we can stop ourselves and think, okay, what am I missing here? What do I not know about what's going on in my kids' lives or in their head or, um, you know, before we jump to a conclusion or jump to getting mad or, you know, what, what are we missing? So just, just remember that as you're, as you're thinking about these things that it can make life better for you. Okay. Should we move on to intellectual courage? I think this is my favorite one. This is a hard one, but yeah, it's a good one. It's, it's, I think I like it because it is so difficult to develop, but when you do, it's so liberating. So how did you start with developing some courage intellectually i think it came down to reading i think i started (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think it started with i wanted to understand the arguments of those that i disagreed with and at the time this was several years back it was the Democratic socialists in U.S. politics at the time. I, I, I disagreed with some of their views and I want, but, but at the same time, I recognized, you know, from, from some of these other experiences, I developed some intellectual humility and some empathy and I recognized, okay, I don't have the full, I don't have the full picture here. I don't even fully understand what socialism actually means. What is socialism versus communism? What is capitalism? Well, I, I didn't, 
I recognized I don't fully understand these things. I know I have a side, a position, a, a, a tribe that I was part of. You know, this was several years ago. But I was starting to realize I don't have the full understanding of this. So I started researching it a little bit, and I had the guts to go and read things like the Communist Manifesto. And How dare you? <laughs> and Das Kapital by Karl Marx. And as I started reading some of those things, at first it felt a little bit wrong. It felt like I... You know, the, I don't I don't need to read these things like this is going to corrupt me. Right. And, and around this same time, I actually <laughs> this is probably part of what helped me is I was talking to someone about reading Jonathan Haidt's book, The Righteous Mind, because it was, you know, right around the 2016 election and people were freaking out about politics and Trump and all that. And so I was trying to make sense of that. And I read uh, The Righteous Mind and I was telling someone I knew about it. And how it it helped me to recognize, to temper some of my opinions and that there's like all this psychological stuff going on that I'm maybe not fully aware of and bias, cognitive bias and things. And this person looked at me and said, well, if I read that, is that going to make me a Democrat? And I just went, I was kind of speechless. Like, what? Like, what? So if learning new information makes you change your mind, is that a bad thing? I remember that just clicking in my head, like just realizing, so you would rather hide from information to avoid changing your mind than change your mind? That that seems odd. And I started started just reading every everything. Any any question that I had, I was like, okay, I want to know both the the strongest arguments for and against this. And so, you know, when it came to like climate change, I wanted the best opinions of experts, like climate climate scientists, and then I also wanted like the most credible detractors when it came to, you know, the the issues around climate change. Like I wanted to read both. I wanted the best arguments from both. And I didn't want to read them in order to reinforce what I already thought. I wanted to read them in order to challenge what I thought. And if I, if I learned something that made me realize, you know what, my position might be wrong, I wanted to change my mind. So those are just some, you know, examples with like politics. But I also did this with religious stuff. I picked up the Bhagavad Gita, uh, one of uh, Hinduism's sacred scriptures, and. It was amazing. It was one of my favorite books I've ever read. If you haven't read the Bhagavad Gita, you should read it. It's it's amazing. And at first, you know, the thought of reading something like that seemed scary. That I would read another, another, you know, religion's sacred texts and like and take it seriously. That felt scary. Like I shouldn't do that. And when I did it, it, it was. It was amazing. I learned some great lessons from that book. The Bhagavad Gita is amazing. I was willing to go and read, you know, books by historians that were critical of of the history I'd, I'd always grown up with around the country or 
Like I didn't need to go and just reinforce what I already thought. I wanted to learn for the purpose of seeing where I might be wrong. And that's scary. I, I know that there's probably people listening that just the thought of doing that, of going and reading something that disagrees with their views sounds wrong. We, Hannah and I were discussing this the other day, and Hannah made a really good point. So, yeah, I just realized that if my beliefs were correct, then they should be able to withstand scrutiny, right? Exactly. And if my thoughts on a specific subject or worldview are faulty or inaccurate, then kind of the same thing as Justin. I mean, he was this, he went through this process a long time before I did, but, you know, if my worldviews were faulty, then. I wanted to know and I wanted to base the things that I had faith in in things that were places where there wasn't necessarily evidence. You know, like there is a place for faith and there's a place to um, study and use your own intellect. And I, I wanted to see both sides. I wanted to see where I could be wrong. Yeah, just same thing as Justin. Yeah. So this is probably this the toughest one to develop. And the first few times you do this, it will feel scary. It will feel it's scary to challenge your your worldview, but it t- and it takes courage. I liked in the, our last episode when Hannah used the example of Adam and Eve and Eve had courage. That's Honestly, like that that's what we're talking about is having the courage to do that, even though it it might make you less comfortable than you were. I think that's really having faith that she knew, you know, in this story, she knew that that was the path forward, you know, and that's what faith is, is being able to do something scary, knowing that that's the right path forward, that it will help you progress and not be stuck in innocence and in just you know like something that's ignorance ignorance yeah yeah being ignorant is not having faith Mm -hmm. so so one thing you know since justin brings up this story and and it kind of ties into the next the next virtue which is um intellectual autonomy which is basically that you can you can think for yourself right right so you take ownership of your own thinking. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I heard this one. One of the things that helped lead me to this and ties in with what Justin was talking about was I he told me he shared with me this quote a long time ago um, that's attributed to Aristotle. Um, we don't really know if it's a good translation or if that's really from him, but it's, um, it's well, actually, we do know it's a very bad translation of what he actually said. So. He didn't necessarily say this, but it's a great quote nonetheless. Yeah, and and I'm I share it not because it's true, but it, it made an impact on me developing some autonomy. And the quote goes, It is the mark of an educated mind to hold a thought without accepting it. And I'm a very visual person. I'm a designer by trade, uh, so I really connect with through visual examples and when I, when I heard that, the, the word that stood out to me was hold, um, to be able to hold a thought without accepting it. And in my mind, I envisioned 
actually holding information as if it were an object. You don't necessarily have to agree with the information, but to just be able to look at it and just study it without having an attachment. I like what Hannah's saying, that you can hold it. You can hold an idea or a thought in your mind and just examine it and see, does this make sense? Does it not? What do I think about this? It doesn't mean that you have to accept it. And if you don't like it, you can throw it back on the ground. But now you know what it is, right? Exactly. So I think that's a good key to developing intellectual autonomy is recognizing I can examine a thought or an idea without having to accept it. The important piece that we need to remember with intellectual autonomy is that we're taking personal responsibility for our thoughts. That means that we are not outsourcing them to some authority figure or our tribe. We are instead taking personal responsibility for what we believe and we're formulating our opinions on our own. Yeah. Doesn't mean that we can't be influenced by those other things, but we can't just let just delegate that to someone else and someone says this is wrong don't think any more about it just accept that i said it's wrong no we need to take personal responsibility to go and verify okay does that make sense does this rule make sense or if uh you know like our our political tribe says you know the these this other group is our enemy and they believe this Let, let me give an example I was talking to somebody about, this was a couple of years ago, about uh, abortion. And they brought up this uh, law that had been passed in another state by, you know, the Democrats, this person's words, not mine, and how this, the, you know, the Democrats were passing these awful abortion laws that would allow a baby to be aborted up until afterbirth, which would then not be abortion, it would be murder. But that we were discussing this and... I said, really? Does does the law say that? Have you have you read it? And they, you know, told me about some news article they'd read, and I'm like, well, let's actually read the law. And so I hurried and googled it, and we pulled up the the bill that had been passed, and started scrolling through it, and kind of, you know, read like the summary and got a better idea of what the law actually said, and it was. I can't remember exactly what it was. It was more complicated than, than what they were saying. And that that's a good example. When we just let a news source or some political pundit process all of the information for us and then tell us what to think about it, that is not exercising intellectual autonomy. Intellectual autonomy is saying, I am capable enough as a rational being to go and look this information up on my own and figure out what I think about it. So if I hear about some piece of legislation that is so great or so awful or whatever, and I if I just trust what my news source or what my favorite politicians are telling me about it, like that is being intellectually subject to them. You're, you are subject to their interpretations of it. Go and look the information information up on your own. Do your own reasoning through it, like read it. And you know what? The first few times you do this, maybe the that language in the, the bill like is a little over your head, doesn't make sense. It's time to learn. And the only way you learn is practice. 
I think to have a healthy democracy, more of us need to understand those kinds of things and need to be able to vet that stuff on our own and not just rely on political pundits and politicians to tell us what's what's in those. Not that I think those I think those those groups get a bad rap. I mean, some of it's deserved, but also I think some of them that are trying to genuinely do a good job and we all just hate them, but I, I think it it helps us to understand the complexity of the issues that they are trying to communicate simply to most of us that are that are not as involved in those things. When we go and get the information ourselves and try to reason through it ourselves, that's when we can understand, okay, the issue is actually more complex. And we can, we oftentimes I've found that I have a lot more patience for those that are trying to communicate this stuff, but I see through where their biases are. That's not always true. Sometimes I see what is actually in the, you know, the legislation or the, the study that was cited or whatever. I go and actually read those things. And then I realize, wow, the person that was talking about this in this news article or on this podcast, they completely put their own spin on it and are act- it, they're intentionally trying to deceive people. I've seen both. Yeah. Or, or they're just not thinking about it in an objective way yeah and they just don't know they're just putting their own opinion but i think that's the whole point right if you have gone you've looked at their original sources for the information as much as possible which there is a lot of information you know like original source information out there to go study if you're doing that then the whole point is that you can see where people are being manipulative or giving their their own opinions that aren't necessarily based on fact um, versus where it's a good place to give them some leniency because it is a really complicated topic and it helps you to figure out okay this might be a good general source of information to go to versus um, this is a place this is really biased and either way you can have a mental gauge of how much trust you can put into each source right that you can um, take each source with a grain of salt based on, you know, this one's going to be very left-leaning and this one's going to be very right-leaning or this is going to be whatever, you know, and you can you can take that information and say, I recognize that this is going to have a little bit of a spin on it, but if I put that information with what I've read on my own and these other sources, you can get a really good idea of what the true story is. Yeah, I like that. I do want to do a, a future episode on how to find good information sources, but I will say that that this is a really good first step to to identifying good information sources is developing intellectual autonomy where you think about things on your own and you don't just trust what comes from your favorite news for, news source or whatever confirms your bias or whatever comes from your favorite authority figure, you think through things on your own. And as you learn to do that, like Hannah said, you'll start to recognize where the bias actually is from these sources. And then you can continue to take information in from them, but you do it with a grain of salt because you know there's going to be some sort of bias from from each source. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So should we jump on to the next one? Yeah. Intellectual integrity. So this one is, I mean, it's just like it sounds. It's it's having the integrity to apply these tools 
not just to ourselves or not just to, to others that we disagree with, but we hold ourselves to these same standards. We have that integrity. We practice what we preach. We openly acknowledge inconsistencies in our own beliefs and in our own thinking when they're pointed out to us, just as we would expect the person that we disagree with to do. I mean, it, I don't know if it needs to be said, but you look at politics and this is non-existent. That everybody likes to hold their enemy to, ah, I hate that word, not enemy. The person that we disagree with, we'll just go with that. We like to hold them to a higher standard than we hold our own side. Happens all the time. And intellectual integrity means that we don't do that. That if we see our side committing the same logical fallacies or the same manipulations or you know, anything that is not an honest way of arguing, we call it out and we call for it to be corrected no matter who the, who the source is. Yeah. And I want to just say here that Justin and I are having to do this all the time where we're having to check ourselves and say, okay. Oh, it's hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. We, I mean, and it, this is like a, this is a daily occurrence that we're doing this and that I think it's healthy to do is to say, okay, am I formulating ideas that are not based on the best information that we have available? And are we kind of diving into one side of things? Do we like, what sources can we um, look at from the other side of things? And it takes a lot of work, but like, it's so easy for someone to go just, I am sure we've all seen this happen where someone starts out that maybe they grow up with a certain ideology or theology and then they grow up, they kind of have a shift in what they believe and they go the exact opposite. Yeah. And it's important that we're checking ourselves the whole way along because in my personal opinion, there's really no one right way. Like no one's got it figured out 100%. And so That's we need to be humility. Yeah, we need to be checking ourselves constantly to say, okay, am I going too far this way? Am I going too far that way? Am I forgetting about these stillman arguments from this other side? And yeah, Justin's someone who's really good at that. And a good example of this is, I was a, an LDS missionary like 15 years ago, and while I was a missionary, I remember I went to South Texas. And there's a lot of Catholic people down there. And I remember as a missionary being extremely critical of Catholic doctrines and practices. For example, praying to saints. I was, I just thought that was completely stupid. And I remember, I remember talking to other missionaries about this, even teaching people this, how wrong that was, how it was clearly not biblical. If you read just the 10 commandments, it debunks that as a doctrine and, And, uh, it's funny, like years later, I look at it and I'm like, how was I not applying that to my own beliefs? Because we, in, in the LDS tradition, we have some pretty out there doctrines, some crazy (laughs) stuff like, and and not to say those are right or wrong, just that they're, they're not like, not all of them are found in the Bible and they're interesting doctrines. And this criticism of Catholics, like I wasn't. I wasn't having any integrity and I wasn't willing to apply those same standards to 
my own beliefs. Like how, how weird is this belief? How wrong would it be just looking at it strictly biblically or the, you know, through a, a moral or ethical lens? Like I wasn't, I wasn't doing that. So, um, that's just, that's an example of how I did not have intellectual integrity at the time. And then what Hannah was talking about, it had, I, you know, learned more about Catholicism and, you know, maybe learned more about LDS theology, I might've swung to the other side and been like, well, I was so critical of Catholics, but clearly it's the, the Mormons that are, that are the bad ones and that are wrong. And I started to apply all of the critical thinking standards to the LDS side and then stop doing it to the Catholic side. Like that would be an equal problem to have intellectual integrity means that we apply the tools of critical thinking to all sides, all ideas. And we hold everyone to the same standards of evidence and reason that we hold ourselves. Yeah. I want to just comment here that um, a lot of our examples in this are talking about things that are kind of contrary to the cultures that we grew up in. And I just want to state that our examples, or we're not trying to pick on anyone here, we're just sharing our experience of shifting out of those worldviews a little bit and becoming more objective. But if we would have been raised the other way, it our examples would probably be just coming from the other side. Yeah. Right? So I'm not trying we're not trying to like pick on anyone or their specific beliefs. We're not even stating right. what our stances are on anything. We're just explaining our our experiences here and how we learn to be more object- objective. So I don't want anyone listening to this and saying like, oh, they're just, you know, really <laughs> throwing certain groups under the bus. We're really not trying to. It's just this is our experience. And we're really right now we're trying to be as objective as we can about everything and as level-headed as we can about everything. Yeah, I'm glad that you you called that out. I think it, it again, it has a lot to do with intellectual autonomy and that like holding an idea and just examining it. That's mm-hmm. what we're doing here. Yeah. Is we're examining these these examples. It's not that we're taking a side. Mm-hmm. We're just saying, "Hey, let's let's examine these objectively." Yeah. Come to your own conclusions. Exercise that intellectual autonomy. Yeah. So none of this is meant to persuade or anything like that. It's just they're Analyzing. just readily available examples because they come from our own lived experience and they're ones that we know that our listeners will probably relate to because they come from their experiences for the most part. So, okay. Okay. The next one is intellectual perseverance. Uh, I think this one's pretty straightforward. Well, let me, let me actually give an example to illustrate this one. I was having a discussion with someone once again about abortion. It was actually before Roe v. Wade was overturned, but there was some discussion about, I think Alabama was, they were challenging Roe v. Wade and the law that Alabama was putting forward was, would outlaw all abortion. And, uh, I I was just discussing with someone about, well, should, should it be all abortion or is there, you know, are there cases, you know, to preserve the life of the mother or rape or incest? Like what, what are these nuances that we need to, to figure out? And, as I was having this discussion, like this person was saying, well, I think we need to do, or I support Alabama because of X. And so I would, you know, kind of challenge that and be like, well, what about, you know, this example of, you know, like rape or incest? Like, do we really, is this the right path? Do we really want to do that? And 
um, after me challenging that a few times, this person just finally said, well, we have to do something. So I'm going to support this, this bill that Alabama's put forward because we have to do something. And I, I was kind of startled by that. Like trying to do something means we could still do the wrong thing. Isn't it worth it to critically think about this before we throw our support behind a pretty extreme option? Should we think through, you know, the, the nuances of this and what are the implications of this? That's intellectual perseverance. I feel like I'm tooting my own horn in that example, but it's just the one that I could think of where, yeah, when we throw up our hands or, or somebody that we're talking to discussing this with gets really frustrated with us and throw up their hands and say, stop, like we're, I'm getting frustrated. We, we don't, you're asking too many questions. We're thinking about this too much. Let's just act like that's, that's sacrificing intellectual perseverance. We need to persevere with critical thinking, even when it's hard, even when we come across sticky, frustrating issues, like we need to make sure we're not making bad choices just because we don't want to take the time and effort to think through them. Yeah. Early on when I was learning how to think critically about things, I remember getting to a place where I was, I was very uncomfortable. This is post seizures. Um, so I was a little more aware of what was going on subconsciously. Um, but I recognized in myself that I was starting to entrench in my, my beliefs. And I don't think it's healthy to necessarily just like force yourself into something that you're not ready for. So I'm not advocating for that. I think it's important to take time and take your pace you don't want to throw yourself into something that is mentally going to um, hurt you, right? Because sometimes like just altering neural pathways can be very disruptive for someone. But I think perseverance is the ability to recognize that in yourself that, you know, you are entrenching or that you are getting scared of new information and shutting down and so refusing to look at anything else. And if you need to do that for a little while, that's okay. Um, it's important to take care of yourself. You don't want to send yourself into a mental spiral, right? But being able to just say, I'm going to continue to try to critically think at my pace, right? Yep. And not just giving up because it's hard. Yep. So let's jump to the next one. Um, confidence in reason. I think this one is very important because when when we lose confidence in reason, we then have to rely on something else to get people to choose what we want. And if we lose confidence in reason, we no longer choose persuasion. And instead, we have to turn either to manipulation or violence and force or some form of oppression in order to get the things that we want. So when we lose confidence in reason... That's what results is either manipulation, violence, or oppression. So even when issues get difficult, or this is really important in like a democracy, when people vote the opposite way of what we wanted, we need to maintain confidence in reason that, okay, maybe this time around people chose the wrong thing, but we are going to like work hard to persuade them to, to, to a different belief next time, 
rather than resorting to, all right, well, then we need to manipulate this or we need to use violence to get what we want. Either, you know, manipulating how people vote, manipulating the information that they take in. I mean, let's be honest, a little bit of that, a lot of it of that happens anyway. But uh, confidence and reason is that we we maintain confidence that not only we ourselves can are capable of, of having reason, you know, that intellectual autonomy, but also that other people can be capable of critical thinking and exercising reason when it comes to decision-making. Even if they disagree with you, right? Yep. As critical thinkers, we have to be confident that in the long run, everyone's going to benefit if we rely on reason and evidence rather than resorting to something else. Like I said, violence, manipulation. So that's what confidence in reason is. Anything you want to add to that? Yeah, I think there can be two obstacles to this. I think that people can sometimes be overly confident on a personal level. You know, this is, we're kind of talking about confidence and reason um, as a whole, you know, for like a society. But I think you can even boil this down to an individual having confidence and reason. And the two dilemmas there are, are people can be overly confident in their reasoning where they you know, stop looking at all the different sides of an argument because they trust themselves too much. Or they can be underconfident where they think that people are inherently evil and they need someone um, with authority to guide them. Or they also might just think they're not smart enough. And, or, you know, maybe they just don't have, don't have the right brain for it or something like that. And I think it's important to have the intellectual humility as the remedy for that first one when you're overly confident to have intellectual humility. And when you're underconfident, recognizing that anyone can learn anything with the right resources. And it might be more work for some people than for other people. It might come naturally for some people. And if that's not you, don't despair. I don't think it was natural for me either, but if you continue to have the perseverance, I think the remedy for being underconfident is having perseverance to find the right resources, which this podcast is an excellent one. That's what Um, we're trying to be. That's what we're trying to be anyway. Hopefully we are. You know, there's tons of books and if you struggle to read a, um, just a hard copy of a book, audio books are great. You know, finding different tools and slowly developing the skills over time to help you acquire this this ability to have confidence in your own reasoning, that you trust yourself to be able to look at every side and come to a good conclusion. Yeah, that's good. So let's move on to the last one, fair-mindedness. So fair-mindedness, it it overlaps with intellectual integrity a lot, but it's really getting at how we use critical thinking. So this, the book, the source for these intellectual virtues, there's a couple of them uh, by Linda Elder and Richard Paul. They identify three different types of thinkers. There are non-critical thinkers that just kind of give in to all of their biases, don't think about anything critically, don't analyze. They just kind of believe what they want to believe. There are critical thinkers that 
use those critical thinking skills for selfish reasons. I think of a lot of like political pundits when I think of this, that they are very good at using the tools of critical thinking, but they only use it to back up their own side or to make others look stupid or, or to manipulate information and a situation to, to get the outcome that they want. And then Charlie Kirk. (laughs) Yeah, there's a few. Or the the last one is selfless critical thinkers, fair-minded critical thinkers that treat all perspectives equally without favoring our own feelings or interests. We consider all perspectives based on reason and evidence, regardless of who's going to benefit. So that's what fair-mindedness is, is that we are willing to apply the tools of critical thinking in a fair way. It really, to me, this one just comes down to our motivations. Are our motivations to get a certain outcome that we want? Or is our motivation to really figure out what is the best outcome for everyone? What is objective truth about something? When that's our motivation, we apply critical thinking skills in a fair-minded way rather than just for selfish reasons in order to manipulate people into what we want them to believe and get the outcomes that we want. Anything you want to add to that one or does that sum it up pretty well? That sums it up really well. Okay, cool. Well, those are all of the intellectual virtues. I will add a link to the the book that these came from. There's a, a short version. It's called The Miniature Guide to Critical Thinking. And uh, it's like 25 pages. It's great. Covers a lot of the basics of critical thinking. These are just one aspect of it, these intellectual virtues. But um, there's it also breaks down the things like into the different components of thought and then the different uh, standards that we need to hold all of our thoughts and arguments to. It's, it's a really great book. So I'll put a link to that probably in the document that I share with these virtues in it. Highly suggest checking that out. And then also last thing that I wanted to cover really quick, the idea of neuroplasticity. So our brains, they are capable of, I mean, this is what learning is. We carve new neural pathways to learn new things, to learn new ways of doing things. As we've talked through these different virtues, intellectual virtues, some of them might feel difficult or out of reach for you as you practice them as you consciously say you know what i'm going to try to practice more intellectual autonomy and you go and do that like you can train your brain to start doing this naturally to the point that it doesn't take nearly as much work it just becomes a natural way that you view a problem or an issue and that's where i think more of us need to get to in order to avoid the the just extreme polarization that we we see a lot of times and conversely you can also do the other you can do the opposite of that where um, if you are working those neural pathways in the same way over and over and over True. it can entrench you into those and where it's harder to break them so and it's harder for you to think outside of that. Yep. And so you feel... This is what happens when we just watch one form of media mm-hmm. all the time. And they're they're giving us these specific like types of arguments. They give us lots of straw man arguments. They, they train us to not be able to think critically. Yep. Yep. So, you know, if you've been thinking that way for a long time, if it feels really hard to you, 
it's how your physiology it's not just your problem. yeah it's it's a physiological issue and it can be um, reversed basically you can just takes work it takes a lot of work but you can retrain your neural pathways and i just lastly before we close up i just wanted to say that the reason that these are so important is if you jump into the tools of critical thinking you know in that critical thinking 101 this series that we're going to be doing as we talk about you know, how to ask questions, how to find sources, all of these things. If you don't develop these skills along the way with it, if you don't develop these attributes, then it's very easy to fall into that middle group of critical thinkers where you're manipulating to try to come to your own conclusions and it's actually harmful to yourself and to other people. And so that's why we started with this. Yep. Because this is how you begin to do this in an altruistic way that leads to positive results in your personal life and as a society. For all of us collectively. So this is the most important place to start is trying to develop these attributes um, and then working up from there. Absolutely. Cool. Well, I think this was a good conversation. Thanks for being an excellent host or (laughs) co-host as always, honey. Thanks. You too. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Go ahead and message me. If you'd like to come on and do an interview where we critically analyze one of your beliefs, send me an email, theatetuspodcast at gmail.com. That's T-H-E-A-E-T-E-T-U-S-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. And uh, yeah, also we're starting to kind of get this out there a little bit more. It's, I, I hate doing it. I'm not very good at, you know, marketing myself and selling myself, but I think this is important for people to learn. Yeah. This is scary guys. (laughs) Who knew? (laughs) Yeah. But if you could subscribe or follow us on your favorite podcast app, uh, maybe leave a rating, uh, that would, that would help us get, get this out there a little bit more, um, share it with people. Don't be afraid to do that if you feel so inclined. So, okay. Well, thanks. We'll talk to you next time. Have a good one.